Welcome to Inspire and Innovate, a podcast for educators. We are educators and instructional coaches at St. Andrew's Episcopal School in beautiful Jackson, Mississippi. Our Inspire and Innovate movement seeks to make visible the expertise of teachers while also upping our game in conversation with other thought leaders. I'm Shay Egger and I work with early childhood and elementary school faculty to support the use of different teaching strategies and tools to foster real world learning experiences for students. I'm Toby and I teach fifth grade math I'm Julie Rust, and I work with middle and upper school faculty to explore the many ways we can cultivate learning experiences with youth to invite them into engagement with content, skills, and community. Y'all, teaching is hard, and it's never been harder than the past 11 months or so. That's why our first series is dedicated to investigating teaching in the time of COVID. Today, we welcome Ian Simmons, an author, speaker, ed activist, and strategist. Shay and I first got to know Ian through a workshop he led for school leaders to begin to brainstorm resilience strategies in this unique time. He is the visionary president and founder of Ian Simmons and Associates Incorporated. Long before a consultant, however, Ian was a practitioner. His global professional practice as a senior officer, executive director, and dean spans over 30 years and several senior roles. Before he launched ISA, Ian led independent schools, boarding schools, traditional undergraduate colleges, graduate schools, and adult learning programs. Occasionally dubbed an ed activist, Ian holds a high opinion of the role of education in building communities, transforming people, and solving social issues. Very early in his consulting, writing, and speaking career, Ian earned the role of one of America's best thought leaders in educational circles, defined by a culturally relevant approach and progressive delivery of thinking. During our conversation with Ian, we discussed the importance of a relational foundation in teaching, centering wellness, building community, and being willing to take risks as school communities. We hope you enjoy our conversation with the inspiring Ian Simmons. Well, so I was part of our school team, Ian, in the past, so I feel like I know you so well, but I was one of, of many folks on um, those, those meetings, but really enjoyed kind of your take on resiliency and, and thinking through these strange times. And I mean, really the theme of that whole podcast was exactly, or that whole series is, is very similar to kind of the theme of, of this podcast. We're hoping to just have some conversations with some really thoughtful folks about what, what is education now? Um, what do we do as we move ahead? And, and to think broadly about those questions. And in particular, we're interested in, in helping folks in, in the Mississippi, the state of Mississippi um, across public and private school sectors. Um, and so, so my role here at the schools, I'm primarily a teaching and learning coach. Um, and, and I work in what we call our I2 movement, which stands for Inspire and Innovate and also happens to be our podcast uh, name. Uh, and we just are always thinking about ways to up our game and, and have faculty share the things that work, we find that, you know, leveraging the expertise of our faculty is the best way to grow. Um, and I have one such amazing colleague <laughs> right here, my friend Toby. Toby, you want to introduce yourself? Sure. It's good to meet you, Ian. I'm Toby Lowe. Uh, this is my seventh year at St. Andrews, and I'm, I'm pretty much approaching a decade of teaching in general. I came up on the West Coast, so very progressive kind of teaching styles. The first school I taught at, all the kindergartners called me by my first name, that kind of thing. And uh, I really have enjoyed reading some of your blog posts because as a teacher, I'm not usually thinking those two levels ahead of like, some schools are just going to be done after this. 
And I thought that was fascinating. And obviously, I have a vested interest in making sure any school I'm at is uh, not one of the schools that's going to be done. So, <laughs> but I just thought it was very interesting, the kind of thinking you're doing. So I'm excited to get the chance to talk with you more about it. So, if, yeah. So if you're if you're good with it, we thought we'd just jump in um, and, and have a conversation. This is super informal. So um, feel free to just conversation. And of course, we'll edit it after the fact. Um, but our sure. first question, of course, is that broad question you would expect of just tell us a little bit you know, about your background. Um, what has driven you to be so interested in reimagining education? Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting. I, I've always worked in education. I, uh, when I was in graduate school, I, I got my first job back in uh, the Midwest and central Illinois working basically in athletic recruitment. And from that point forward, I, I kind of ran the gamut from higher ed and independent school admissions, financial aid work, and, and uh, all, all sorts of um, research and strategic planning and strategy work. And what's interesting is I, I, I really got um, an understanding of how outdated our educational model was. It's just the longer I worked, and it, I, it looked to me that education was devised to meet the needs of the organization and not the needs of the system, of the system students. So it was, education seemed to be a slave to the system, to the organizations which created it and perpetuated it, and, and including those oftentimes meant for the faculty and staff that worked within those environments it didn't seem very student-centered. And the, the longer I worked in education, the more I realized that. And so when I started my firm 17 years ago, it was with this idea that maybe we could play some small role in helping reimagine what education would look like, both at the primary, secondary, and even at the higher education level. So yeah, you know, it's like Ted Dintersmith always says, when everything else in the world is changing so rapidly, why would we keep holding on to an educational system that is stuck in the past, right? And that that's that's always has stuck with me. So, I saw Tony or Toby laugh as you as you started to talk about student centered. I think this is going <laughs> to align quite well, uh, Toby, with your own philosophy. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, yeah, absolutely. Obviously, uh, there's been buckets of ink spilled about like how our current system just seems to be getting kids ready to be compliant rather than to be thinkers. And like, that's why we have a bell schedule. And that's why all, you know, everything is designed to get you ready to move into a manufacturing job that like probably isn't there anymore and things like that. So that's why also I was really interested to read your work on credentialing and like what, you know, what does that look like for schools that actually matter to their primary users, which are of course students. One question I did have for you is, what are some schools that you've visited or that you've worked with or that you've helped uh, that seem to be better positioned uh, to meet the needs of these students? I wonder if you could give us an example of some schools around that you were seeing are doing the right things. Yeah. So there's, you know, first of all, I, I would say there's a lot of, I'm going to, I'm going to take that question to the next level. First of all, and tell you those characteristics of schools that I see that are doing things better than others and <clears throat> have positioned them selves to be more innovative. And then I might mention a few schools. Whenever you find a school, an independent school or a private school, or even a very distinct charter school, that may be operating in its own environment, kind of an insulated environment, meaning it's the only one of a kind in a given place. Um, that's usually not a good sign because they tend to be pretty isolated. So geographic isolation can be a very dangerous thing for education. Now, in a place like you know, Jackson, Ridgeland, Madison, 
you're you're in a pretty independent school education rich environment and there's a, a lot of obviously competitive forces um but it's 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 actually a fairly um robust independent school environment and so that's i think helped raise the bar so one of the parameters that i would always say one of the conditions for innovation and helping schools really be forward thinking is a competitive environment. It's just one of those things that's really important. Find a school that's operating on its own in a marketplace. You oftentimes are going to find maybe a little bit more of holding on to the past and less thinking about the future. Um, one of the quotes that grounds my work that you probably, if, if you've read some of my reading, you probably see it, but I, I love the progressive thinker, Francis Parker. Um, he, Francis Parker always said, the work of the school is determined by the needs of society. The work of the school is determined by the needs of society. Well, we know society's needs are shifting so quickly, so rapidly. Just one watch of the news every night will tell you where we need to be heading. That's, that's what invigorates me. I think another characteristic of schools that are innovating are schools that are confident in themselves. Um, one, of the, one of the things that I've noticed about schools is that some schools have a bit of a inferiority complex. They're a little bit afraid to take risks because they're maybe afraid that they're going to fail. So the thing that you want to be teaching your own students, right, is the ability to take risks and so forth. Um, you know, you, you want to learn that as part and, and develop it as part of your organizational DNA. It's okay. It doesn't have to look like something that you that you you think is going to work. You, you need to try it and, and be willing to do it. The third thing that I would tell you that I think are preconditions for schools that are just doing really innovative work are they systematize it. So something like this, like what you're doing, you actually create a venue at your school that allows a sandbox, a real live, you know, funded for sandbox, whether you call it a pilot program or signature programs or you develop a you know, an innovation arm of the institution, not everything's going to stick, but some things will. And if you don't systematize it, you likely won't work it. So I notice as I travel across the country and the world, as I work with clients all over, those are three characteristics that tend to breed innovation. Now, obviously, you, you probably see yourself in some of those characteristics, but I see those. It doesn't really matter what geography you are. If you are in one of those environments, you're probably going to find a school that's doing pretty innovative things and they're helping raise the bar schools that I think are one step above all of that have figured out that their role in their marketplace is not competitive, but rather collaborative. So I really applaud, I really applaud what you're doing here because one of the things that intrigued me about what St. Andrews is doing is that you're actually trying to um, share information. You're trying to um, not just innovate for the sake of innovation, but you're trying to make everybody better around you. And I, I think when schools realize they move from being competitive to collaborative, that this is really, we're all in this together and uh, the rising tide raises all boats, if you will, that's a game changer. So those are three or four characteristics and you'll find those in schools across the country, whether you're in Chicago or Jackson or, or LA or, you know, um, you know, Cleveland, you'll find a school or two that has really risen to that place. And then it usually though is because it has those three or four characteristics. 
Well, that's a great answer, Ian. And boy, there's no time more than now uh, to be <laughs> to be all in this together. And certainly, we have found um, that, that that sharing with our community always reaps dividends for us. Um, and, and we learn so much from our community partners all across, both locally in the Jackson area and, and everywhere. Teachers are doing cool things everywhere, and I love how you kind of shunt kind of up to the kind of programmatic big picture um, because much of where someone like Toby and I too live is really in the micro and in the classrooms. And it's neat to think about how those two things really do enliven and inform each other, both the systematic, bureaucratic, um, programmatic moves. And then also the, okay, I'm a math teacher. I'm working with fifth graders in an hour. What do I do? Right. And so um, I want to kind of then take that question and, and bring it down a little bit more to some granular examples. If you have some um, in specific, specifically in relation to how unique this moment is. And, you know, we've all been through these incredible changes in terms of what an educational experience even looks like in the past year. There's been, of course, this huge um, increase of anxiety and stress and, and sh financial uncertainty in lots of folks and families and faculty. Um, on the other hand, there's also, I've noticed at our school anyway, uh, a sort of shift in terms of the feeling of hope um, as, as increasingly we get vaccinated and uh, faculty, uh, that gives us all sort of a sense of, of uh, hope for the future. Um, so, so I wonder, you know, if, if you were to look at sort of what we've done this past year, what do you hope that a classroom teacher um, might take uh, from this insanity that has been the past 12 months and, and, you know, use, as you said, sort of this notion of a growth mindset or, or the resilience? What, what should stick? We, one of your blogs was entitled, you know, what will <laughs> stick? And so what should stick? And particularly, um, if you can, to kind of go more to the micro for classroom teachers of, you know, what, what, what should I be doing in my classroom um, next year and in, in, in moving forward? Well, so it's interesting. It's a good, good question, Julie. I, I, I would say uh, to contextualize your answer, I might say I see three seasons that happened during the pandemic. And we're right now in the third season. You can call them trimesters if that's useful, whatever it may be. But the first phase was um, what do we do one year ago? One year ago, actually, right around now, I was yeah. sitting in a hotel room in Westchester County, New York, uh, getting ready to go to a client the next day in, in Connecticut. And um, I had this sinking suspicion, this might be the last time I'm on a school campus for a while. <laughs> like, like this, this, this is not looking good. You know, we were still talking about hot spots and um, you know, what was happening. We didn't know much at the time about the virus, but I would say trimester one was during the headlights look. Oh my gosh, we're going on spring break. When we come back, are we going to be virtual or not? What do we do? We just got to make it to the end of the year. And that was kind of during the headlights look. We flexed in any way we could. I didn't, we do a lot of strategic planning. There was no institution that we did a strategic plan within the last five years that had um, pandemic planning <laughs> in their, in their strategic plan. Right. So, so, I mean, schools like, you know, like yours, if you're already using technology wisely and you're able to be nimble and, uh, and astute, you, you would pivot and do a great job, but lots of schools are not in that situation. Um, the summer was really second trimester and going into the fall. That is, um, kind of the, moving from deer in the headlights to holy cow, we made it through, but we have to reopen soon. What is that going to look like? Because we're going to have to kind of be thinking about the long game now. 
right? Like, how can we, how long can we sustain this? Mm -hmm. And how do we, I'm looking at your, your room that you're in right now with your plexiglass divider. <laughs> so, I mean, we had schools all of a sudden become specialists in reusing facilities, um, sanitizing space, uh, industries they've never had to think about, right? What I noticed, Julie, is in, to answer your question, what I noticed in January was all of a sudden things shifted. In January, we came back from the holidays and our vacation time and schools all of a sudden were thinking, I see light at the end of the tunnel. Um, we are going to get vaccinated. There's vaccines coming. And I saw a new level of hope. Mm -hmm. And so schools just now, I think, globally, are moving from meeting the moment to the meeting the future. So what are the, what's going to be different for the classroom teacher? What would help a classroom teacher? Um, classroom teachers need to see that learning can take place anywhere, anyway. In the type of environment that we foster in an independent school, the key component is relationships. I, 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 I make a division in a lot of my writing between relational learning, that is, learning between people, learning between an experience, learning between a place, learning between a spirit, that's relational learning that informs your experience, contextualizes it, versus transactional learning. Transactional learning is more regurgitation. Relational learning is, it is the future. It, it, it is really where transformation happens. But structures and systems that were imposed in the past looked more transactional. You know, uh, uh, till we mentioned the bells and the structure and the, the, the pieces of it. Learning, we've learned, learning never was designed to be in a classroom setting. It was never designed to be within four, four walls with 18 students. It, it, it's exploded. And we've learned that so much is possible. And many of the things we're not going to go back to. So my advice to classroom teachers is um, take risks. Use what, use what worked. Don't try to go back. Golly, don't try to go backward. Um, but try to look in front of you to say, how are ways that I can enhance the learning experience? The other thing that I would tell teachers for sure is that technology was used to access education during the pandemic. It will not be used to access education in the future. It will be used to personalize and enhance learning. Mm -hmm. I, I think we've literally scratched the surface of what technology is doing. I mean, we've used it as, oh, were you able to go online and were you able to teach and were you able to keep your school open? That's old school. That's going to go away. The best schools are going to, their teachers are going to think about how do we enhance learning? Certain disciplines are better off actually online or asynchronous in, in some cases. How do we use it to personalize content for a student or personalize their experience? That's where the future is going to be for classroom teachers. So I, I think if I had any advice for classroom teachers is um, no limits, no limits, no, no boundaries, and be willing to fail just as you teach your students. Be willing, because failure at the end of the day is just trying a different way and it didn't work the way you wanted it to. Okay, so that's okay. It's far better than going back to what we had before. So, and, and lean into relationships. And a place like your school understands that relationships, whether it be relationships with a person, a spirit, um, a community, those things inform how you learn about yourself, right? And that's really at the end of the day what you're trying to do. So relational learning, is where transformation happens. 
Thank you, Ian. I, I kind of want to like get some posters up now with some of those quotables that you just <laughs> you just you just dropped like they were nothing. Um, fabulous, fabulous, and you know I, I think that uh, Toby, you're gonna re-enter your classroom ready to. Oh yeah, I mean, fail <laughs> every day. No. My big thing that I, I like taking away from that is the idea that we're just exploding the concept of the classroom in general. And I yes. noticed some of your writing is about, you know, building like a school should be a community entity. Right. And so some of my big questions are just like, what are the best ways for us to reach out to our broader community in general? I know a lot of times we try to flex our connections, but at, in our context, our connections are all lawyers and doctors. And so it can be a lot harder to meet you know, other people in your community, especially people you might want to help serve or even just learn what their everyday life looks like and what it would be like for you to do that as well. I'm thinking like, um, this is long, this is forever ago, but when I was in, you know, first grade, we went on a tour of a grocery store and it was like fascinating to me to see like how that worked and it made sense. So it was like, this is part of my, you know, this is part of our community. This is, this is what happened. So I'm wondering, if you have any advice for, you know, making it past just utilizing connections within your own uh, parent group or or peer group and just how to how to reach out and make really long lasting connections with the community that surrounds your school. And if you know of any schools that have done this really successfully, because that's definitely yeah. something I'd be really interested in. Well, you're you're probably touched on a topic there that is the nearest and dearest to my heart. And I'm going to use a a familiar phrase to start and then I'll kind of walk you through my thoughts on this, but Sesame street got a lot, right. A lot, <laughs> sure right. Did. A lot, <laughs> a lot, right. And I, I go back and I watch Sesame street and I'm like, wow. Um, but probably the, one of the most important things is who are the people in your neighborhood and understanding that you're contextualizing. We're all part of a community. You know, it, interestingly enough, independent schools in particular, have actually, I think, made a, a grave mistake as an industry as seeing ourselves as separated. This is the place you go for safe environments. This is the place where a certain type of family goes to school. This is a, this is a place that is closed off. Matter of fact, I've, I've always, I understand the importance of physical safety in the world that we live in, um, but I also wonder what kind of message it sends. How, how do you create a really connected community to the context of your environment if you really are closed off and you see yourself as and there's all sorts of pieces that, that we do in independent schools that are kind of crazy so selective admissions doesn't actually help us in that endeavor um, our price point makes us un unattainable for many people so we have a lot of barriers that we've self-imposed actually on our own business model and so forth so those are those are i think important pieces but the schools that I see, Toby, they're really doing just a really great job. They have decided to think like a university. They've decided, you know what? We're, we are an important asset to our community. We help, we help businesses move to our community because we provide high-quality education. We know that communities thrive when there's a diverse educational ecosystem. We know that just like they need a good transportation sector, they need a good retail sector, a good uh, you know, banking sector, financial sector they need a good educational sector and it helps drive community development. So schools that think like community developers, meaning we're not removed from our community. We're an integral aspect of our community. We need to be at the table 
when the chamber is discussing whether to build an amphitheater in town. We need to be at the table when um, the community is thinking about new transportation systems and sectors. We need to think more like we are part of the critical fabric of our community. And if we didn't exist, our community would be different. It's kind of like the George Bailey test. I write about that a lot. George Bailey in the movie, It's a Wonderful Life, saw what the world looked like without him, right? And it turns out that that little guy made a difference. His values, <laughs> his, his values basically were the values of the community. And without him living his life, those values didn't transcend the community and forces of evil took over. Now, my wife always says, Ian, you're the only person that thinks that it's a wonderful life is about strategy development. Or something. <laughs> but, but, but it is true. I mean, that's one of those things that, that I think is really important is that we, we need to find a way to be intangible assets. One of the ways you do that is what you're doing, which is freely innovating and giving good information to people and seeing yourself as a collaborative force in the community. Um, so, you know, that's, that's what I see the future of education is going to be. Uh, is more collaboration. And then finally, just on that point, just to take it to one more point, sorry to elaborate, but um, we have to redefine what community means. It doesn't just mean Ridgeland or Madison or, or the I-55 corridor leading up from Jackson. Or it, it, it means much more than that. It means um, we now can do things like this where I'm sitting in Southern California to chat with you you could have teachers that are adjuncting from all over the world. If you want to teach French, maybe you actually have someone from France teach French culture. I mean, what a crazy idea, right? But <laughs> that's, 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 that's some of the collaboration that, that the world has blown off of. So as you look to be more part of your community, you may also have to rethink what community means um, and how that partnership looks. But, you know, I think it becomes becoming an asset, viewing yourself differently. Think like a university. Uh, universities are tied in, inextricably to the community in which they operate. Well, I wonder, that that was such a great question, Toby, and then really interesting answer. And so I'm going to sneak my question a little earlier, Toby, because it seems to apply really well. We read a little bit on your bio about um, the just cause uh, work that you've done, um, as well as sort of your expertise in culturally relevant pedagogy. And I think this might be a good moment for, we just love to learn more. Um, I, I, as I mentioned, I, I did that resiliency workshop with you with no knowledge of your background, kind of the, the, these are kind of areas that matter quite a lot to me as well, sort of culturally sustaining practices in classrooms. So thought I'd pick your brain. I think we also saw the Mississippi Children's Museum. Yeah, we were like, wait a minute, I recognize that place. Yeah, so we would just love to hear about your work in, in this venue and, and what you've learned and why does it matter now? Um, you know, some might say, wait, we have a pandemic. We got to just focus on surviving. Um, but why does it still matter? Maybe it matters more in some ways. Yeah, so... Um... So the Just Cause campaign came about about 10 years ago, just a decade ago, where um, after we had been doing a lot of work for schools and colleges across the country, I started to really want to figure out a way to be able to tie the mission of our organization into more um, transformational practices in terms of community development. I've always believed that education is the gold standard by which investment is made, meaning, you know, if you could 
you could take my family away today. I could lose my family in a plane crash or I could lose my house and my possessions in a fire, but you can't take away that the way I see the world. You can't take away that I view the world and that's forged from not just my own experiences, but from my education. And it's the most durable investment we make. It is the gold standard. And what we know is when education is invested in communities thrive. I've also believed, um, you know, in that famous statement by Bono that, you know, helping someone reach their potential is actually the truest act of love, right? You know, it's not giving them something, but helping them reach their potential is, is probably the biggest act of love. So I just believe education is that case. And so we've chosen yeah, over, over the years organizations that are using education to basically um, break systemic poverty and, and blur the lines between those who have and have not. Um, and really try to elevate marginalized communities. And that's where the Just Cause campaign came about. Yeah, uh, Mississippi Children's Museum is a plant that we've done two strategic plans for wow. over the years. Uh, they, they really actually are quite involved in the education industry. It doesn't quite look like it from the outside, but they really are. And, and increasingly a statewide entity, not just a Jackson-based entity. Um, but we've done a lot of work in different places with this Just Cause campaign. But it's all it's all in the concept that you know, how do we how do we help break the cycle of poverty um, and systemic poverty by using education as a as a vehicle? And so we work with organizations that are really tied to that mm -hmm. as seeing education as a tool of transformation to help individuals and communities really rise above their circumstances. And it's, it's been really, really fun work, really, really fun work. We do try to identify organizations that are kind of flagship organizations within their own region. So obviously Mississippi Children's Museum is one of those, right? Um, super important place and I think in the Mississippi region. With my three children, I have been there so many times. <laughs> I cannot even, I can, I could close my eyes and take everyone on a tour through that wonderful place. So it, it's great to, great so to see. Yeah, it really is. It really is. Well, I want to loop back to when you're talking about, you know, schools should think more like their universities, because that really speaks to me on the level of, and also what you're talking about, you know, our systems don't seem to be meeting the needs of the core constituents, that is the students. And I think about this every time we have conversations about graduation requirements. And it seems to me like the biggest excuse we have for sticking with graduation requirements that are seemingly unhelpful is because we're afraid we're not going to be able to send kids to their next level of education. And, you know, we're, we're, we're just kind of kicking that can, I think, instead of just trying to say, you know what, I think if we just get interesting enough people out of our school, colleges would be foolish not to take them. So I kind of wanted to ask you, like, what do you think? Because I also loved what you said, right? Education is a lens that you learn to craft for yourself. And that's how you interpret the world. Um, what if your particular lens doesn't include pre-calculus, you know, or because I knew pretty early on that and this is, I'm telling on myself now as a math teacher. <laughs> as a math but, teacher. But when I was in high school, I mean, I couldn't stand having to sit through math classes because I just felt like, why do I need to know this? I'm, I'm not planning on doing math in college. You know, the idea of there's just these X things you need to know before we give you this diploma. Instead of like, well, what if I was really interested in learning French and Italian? I can't leave school being interested in French and Italian, but... I can leave school as long as I've done X, Y, and Z. It's just one of those things that I would love to hear your thoughts on, like, how do we move forward? How do we 
you know, get rid of this old way of thinking. Because it is like, to me, that would be the biggest innovation, right? Is, is you, we're going to help a curious student pick what's best for them. Well, so, boy, it's a, it's a great question. I have a lot of responses to it. The, the first thing I think you're going to see is a chain reaction that is really important. Um, I think that, you know, you said it well, that we have kind of looked at the college level and what college dictates we have to follow. And we see ourselves primarily as a chain in their link of supply. We're part of a supply chain, right? So we have to supply students based on a preset fabricated template that they've created that we need to be able to chain up or, or supply for. And so what we are seeing at the college level is an explosion of change within that. So when you started seeing five or seven years ago, long before the pandemic, we're going to change, we're going to become SAT or ACT optional. We're changing our grading standards. You, you can see them working around the edges. You can also see that um, the moderately to modestly selective institutions were the first to do that. But when you start seeing the highly selective institutions start to change their, their entry standards, it'll be a block, uh, kind of a chain reaction down the chain. I think the same will happen relative to what they're expecting from graduates to come from. Um, so I, I think that's one of it. I, I also think that schools like yours, not saying your school, but independent schools, recognizing that your audience for this is not just independent school educators, but throughout the state and the region, other educators as well. I think schools have narrowly defined their purpose and it's really hurt them. So, you know, when, when the family comes in at first grade and says, look, can my kid get into Vanderbilt or Stanford or Harvard if they go to your school for 12 years and we, we reinforce that answer. That's not helping us. Not certainly not helping them, but we're, we're playing part of that game. So, you know, the answer should be, we're going to help kids have infinite choices, mm -hmm. right? The answer is we are in the business of helping kids have infinite choices and they'll discern and we'll also teach them how to discern that future. And if that becomes the answer, yes, that they're going to end up at this XYZ school. Yeah, what if what if precalculus is not in my lens? Um, great. I mean, I, I hope so. I hope I hope that what the pandemic will have done was teach us that it's not we're not defined by the subjects we teach, or we're not defined by how much content we master. But it's really the skills and the aptitudes that we're teaching on how to be a thinker, and and that really is critical. I mean, I love watching how teachers have really leaned into some of the most innovative teaching has happened in the last two decades, happened in the last six months. I mean, we've, we've done 20 years of innovation in six months of, that's why we're all tired. It's, <laughs> the, most, it's, the, it's the most amazing things have happened, right? right? I mean, and, and yes, I, 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 I have to be careful. I'm not grateful for the pandemic. But in terms of moving the needle forward, in terms of education, I'm grateful for the innovation that has resulted as, as we needed to as a result of the pandemic. And so I, 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 think, we're, I think we're ready for an explosion. I think, I think what's going to happen in the future is higher education's standards will change. We will be able to um, flex accordingly. And for independent schools, independence remains our best asset. We are not beholden 
to other standards. We can choose the way we teach. We can choose our educational philosophy. We can choose the classes we decide to organize around because we are independent and we can do that. And hopefully, as a result, we will marshal more, marshal more influence than just our size. We'll punch above our weight and we'll change the narrative and, and we'll change the rules of, of engagement. Ian, my, my title is, uh, my official title is, has teaching, learning, and innovation in it. And I remember we recently had just a beloved upper school division head retire last year. And, and she said, Julie, you know, you tried, you did your best. You had amazing PDs and faculty were sharing with each other, but she was like, nobody really took any of this seriously until the pandemic hit. And I was like, what? All I did for my first, you know, all those months I did my bet. Come on. But this, this uh, division head is not one to mince words. She, she says it, she says it how it is. And she said, nope, we didn't innovate till we had to. And, um, I think, I think that's, that's right on point. I mean, you mentioned we've done more in the past six months uh, than in the past decade. Do you have any examples that jump to the top of your head of, of things you have heard classroom teachers doing, um, you know, that, that, that are so cool. You work with so many different schools across the country. And so we, we wanted to leverage uh, all of those connections you have and see if you have any examples. Yeah. As, as my teaching trainer told me, good teachers steal. So this is partly what is selfish <laughs> on my part, you know. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you a block of schools that I love. I love the schools and maybe you guys are one of them. I love the schools that are in, um, and not everybody is, but are in temperate environments where they have been able to institutionalize the use of outdoor spaces. Yeah. Um, I went on a school visit back in May, I'm sorry, back in December, November, December last year, and I was down at McClay, which is um, Tallahassee area, and McClay had bought over the summertime uh, about a thousand school colored outdoor Adirondack chairs. Ooh. <laughs> they, they were they were big enough, I mean uh, light enough that you could pick them up and move, but they were still durable enough that they would handle the wind and the rain and so forth. And um, they had started to cordon off their campus in ways that teachers could book outdoor spaces, right? And the classes would be held and they could do, literally plug and play, not just indoor space, but outdoor space. I loved it. And guess who really loved it? The students and the teachers, right? Yeah. I mean, completely, completely game changer in the way that their environment feels. And so, you know, the schools that are in the Southeast and United States save a few difficult months you guys have in, you know, November through maybe February, you're able to pivot and be outdoors more. That has been very cool. Um, I've seen schools really rethink technology in terms of um, better ways to be able to counsel and be connected mm. to families. Yeah. So, so I have to be honest with you. We haven't found a school yet that hasn't seen a spike upward in parental involvement and engagement through community events, right? Like, so we used to host a state of the school or a panel discussion on something and, you know, 12 people would show up in the amphitheater. <laughs> but, but now we had 200 for our event last week, right? Um, on the Zoom, just, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, so, so I, I, feel like, um, I feel like, oddly enough, educators are better aware of what I call the kitchen table conversation in families than they were before. It, it's like, and this, is, this really gets to the question about teachers. In the past, Teachers saw kids pick up and drop off. They saw their parents. They saw, and I often learned in 
pick up and drop off when I used to do it, that whatever you saw coming in and out of the car, you know, if, if the parent was distracted or they or the kid walks out and five things won't fall out of the car with them. It, <laughs> it may be, an exa- <laughs> oh, no. it, it, it may be, it, it may be a glimpse into the chaos of the home. Right. I don't know. But, mm-hmm. uh, but my point is those things were very episodic and very, uh, very contrived based upon our experiences with the families. Online technology has given us a, a, a literally of a, a, a few into the living room of families. And I actually think teachers have gotten smarter and wiser about the family dynamic and the need for wellness of their students mm-hmm. as a result of technology. So, um, you know, I, I actually think the really smart schools are using that to devise more thoughtful, individualized wellness plans and be much more up to speed with what the kitchen table conversation is, if you will, that they wouldn't have known before. But they have to they have to find a way to track that and be able to measure it and to be able to make sure that that information is getting to the right places. But no, those are the use of outdoor spaces and the use of technology. I know it sounds crazy, but the use of technology is an indicator for a wellness tool of the family thermometer. I think those are game changers right now. Big. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's like it's the uh, it's the family visit, right? But uh, yeah, but almost secretly, yeah, I love that actually. I mean, that's been one of my favorite things is learning more about students just in terms of like this kid clearly decorates their own room because and they love fairy lights. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Again, building up the relational stuff. And then every pet ever has has made some kind of appearance in all of my classes. Oh, my gosh. And we should mention Toby has a really cute cat that makes appearances in all his virtual uh, The tail. You always see the tail. Well, I and the other piece about the wellness, I think we have talked about wellness, obviously, because we're in a pandemic. But we've talked about wellness with, with more. We've talked about it for years, right, as part of our plan. But I think it came with such a priority this year that it's never come before. And faculty, our most um, you know, staunch, wonderful faculty that care so much about covering a lot of content, they have cut things in half willingly, you know, and then cut it again in half. And so I think all of all of that is is right on. It also reminds me of, you know, I've taught online classes before and often I feel I know those students better because I am looking at all of their posts, right, and attending to all of their, right. I'm, I'm getting all of this constant formative feedback. And in the olden days, it was all forums. Remember those, the forum posts? You would you'd post a forum. And um, so I think all of that is, is, is really on point. Well, I, th- I think, too, just one more piece on this that I think is important. It, it, it's, hard to, it's hard for people who haven't really gone through online learning experiences to understand this, but... I think you get to a certain point online where you realize, okay, transparency is the best thing. I mean, I, I you, you can't you can't kind of fake it till you make it when you're when you're in a in a in a physical setting where there's 20 kids in a classroom. There's a lot of group normalizing that happens. Regard even at the best schools, people are trying to keep up with each other. They're mm-hmm. trying to position themselves. Over time, that just all goes away online and people realize you have my real this is who i am mm-hmm. kind of thing and teachers set the standard with that they're they're the ones that are kind of setting the bar to say this is safe space and so in in some odd way some very counterintuitive way i think um online learning and zooming into people's 
bedrooms and you know living rooms has given us a little bit more transparency it's shined a little bit of light it's it's made things a little bit oddly enough made us be a little bit more natural with each other and now we all want to get back together we all want to spend more time physically together i know that and and that that's coming but i do think that there's some things that have really we've learned about wellness that maybe have helped helped our understanding a little bit more it's beautiful beautiful well I have, we're, we're, we plan on asking all of our podcast guests a couple questions. So we'll end with these kind of fun uh, questions. Sure. This has just been a, a fabulous conversation, Ian. Um, so the first one is, who was your favorite teacher? We're thinking specifically K-12, since that's our pre-K-12, since that's our sort of audience. And why? Yeah, so you know, to me, my favorite teacher, uh, I'm gonna name name him by name. His his name was Phil Trapani, and Phil was um, a lot of things to me. He was a coach, a teacher, an advisor, a mentor. Um, he was he entered my life when I was in elementary school, simply because I I played a sport and I got a chance to coach and be coached under him. He was a high school coach. But then I ended up taking several classes from him when I ended up in high school. So I knew him for a long period of time. Um, you know, my favorite teacher w- was Phil. And the reason why is because he just took an active interest in me. Mm. Uh, and and I didn't have to do anything to earn that. It was, um, I don't know why he did. I, I still am perplexed as to why he took an active interest in me. But he had. I had this feeling around him that I truly was special. Um, that he had chosen to work more closely with me and it had nothing to do with my abilities. He just was keen on me. And maybe a lot of people felt that way about him, but it was his active interest in me. And to me, that created an environment where I wanted to perform, get better, inspire. He inspired me to be my best version of myself. So, yeah, it was it was a uh, selfish. It was all about me, right? <laughs> it was, he was interested in me, and and uh, we all need people like that. So, well, what a great reminder with all of this talk about sort of innovation and doing new things. Um, that that relational piece is is the the core, is the is the foundation, is the rock. And whether it's mediated through Zoom or through face to face, right? That that is, right. and as kids in particular, um, you know, you you got to find you got to find a person that believes in you. So anyway, great reminder. Yeah, no, that was that was beautiful. I had a big grin the whole time. Uh, my question is uh, because of a, a similar person who believed in me, um, one of my teachers probably one of my favorites who every time I saw her had a new book for me. So that's why my big question is, you know, what's, if you could give everyone a book and you knew they would read it, what book would you do to make the world a better place? Wow. Uh, (laughs) uh, Wow. That's a really, really good question. Um, You know, I read a lot and I read a lot um, from self-help to, um, I, I don't, I, oddly enough, I read very little in terms of what educators say we should be doing. That sounds crazy. Sorry to say that. Uh, um, I read a lot from people who really are very thoughtful about how things work. So people who understand how systems work together and how they influence psychology. So I turn to a lot of business writers and so so forth. Uh, 
I think anything by Malcolm Gladwell. Um, I'm a big fan of Malcolm Gladwell. I think he just kind of is in that business of he gets it. He just kind of gets it, but he puts it forth in very, very thoughtful ways. So whether it be outliers um, how, who really understand what makes somebody extraordinary versus somewhat good at something or, um, you know, the ability to connect people to movements. Um, Blink was a phenomenal book. Um, I, anything by Malcolm Gladwell off of his bestseller list, I would say, would be something I would recommend people read because for me, it's a, it's understanding systems. Mm. It, it's understanding how things are connected. And when you make a change in a system, it affects the rest of the system. And, and uh, systemic change is the business that we're in. Fabulous. I'm Tony, I'm so glad you added that question. It's a great, it's a great, it's a great question. Um, we're going to have an uh, Inspire and Innovate library by the end of this. Too. I that's know we are. That's beautiful about that that's question. That's it. Purchase immediately. Yeah, right? Everyone add, do that. Add to my Amazon account. No. Local bookstore account. Yes. There you go. <laughs> well, Ian, this has just been such a delight. Um, is there anything else you just, we haven't asked that you're like, guys, you, did, I, I, you didn't give me an opportunity to say the thing I really wanted to say, or did we, did we get there? You know, the only thing that I would say is I, I increasingly believe that you're going to see education become bifurcated, that, that education is going to fall into two camps. You're going to have transactional learning. Transactional learning was a growth industry in the pandemic. When I say transactional learning, masterclasses. Um, I want to learn how to play a piano with 100,000 other people. I want to, you know, this is kind of transactional learning. Transactional learning is scaled to high volume, low cost, and is content oriented. That's a massive growth industry right now. That, that will continue to grow. And then there's the business of transformational learning. Transformational learning is the business that you're in, which is really about relationships, right? Relationships between a creator or a spirit or a place or an environment or a community. So I, I continue to believe education will go this way, mm -hmm. transactional learning, transformational learning. And the core element of transformational learning is relationships. So as long as you're enhancing relationships, whatever those relationships you value and trust the most, then it has to be right, that mm -hmm. that's what you really focus on. And um, that naturally means certain systems and structures that were part of the transactional environment just need to go away. They just need to, we just blow them up. You know, let's be ready for a lot of funerals. Um, funerals <laughs> of not people, but sacred rituals that just were silly in the past that we've held on to. So um, lean into transformational learning through relationships. Toby, are you ready to transform? Amen. Yeah, your Amen. lips to God's ears. One of the things I would look forward to blowing up. Yeah, I, <laughs> I really appreciate. I really appreciate what you guys are doing. Um, you know, I, uh, it, it's a wonderful thing to watch your school do this. And um, thank you for your leadership, and thank you for your energy to do that. And um, you know, they always say that basketball player Magic Johnson was measured. His greatness was measured by the fact that he made everyone around him better. Right. And um, I think when you do things like this, that's what you're really doing at the end of the day. So well done. Thank, Thank you, you so much. It's been such a pleasure. Yeah. And uh, we have lots to think about for sure. It's the best kind of conversations end with a lot of stuff to think about later. That's so right. thank you. That's right. Thanks, Ian. Hey, all UK 12 teachers out there. Thanks for all you do. 
Now get out there and try some stuff.